0: quick little announcement I have, and then uh, we'll jump into the word. Um, we've been kind of keeping you guys abreast a little bit as to on what's been going on a little bit with our, our, our meeting location. Um, if you're on our little social media gathering spot on the web called The City, uh, you got the little post that we sent out last night. If you're following our little Facebook, Calvary Slow page, and you like that, then you have already gotten the information as well. But in short, let me give you a little bit of a background history. history. Um, Calvary Slow started about 21 years ago. My wife and I moved up here, and we kind of started just with a small group of people. We grew, and uh, we've met at lots of different facilities throughout the years, uh, and uh, we've met at Seven Day Adventist Church for half a decade, over half a decade. We met at uh, Hawthorne Elementary School for over half a decade, um, and basically just met and wherever God opens up doors. We moved in here about six years ago, a little over six years ago, and the hope was, from the moment that we moved in here, that we would begin to sort of expand and knock down this wall and expand things a little bit and build out some more classrooms and uh, get things kind of more suitable, Um, and we've had architectural plans drawn up and everything ready to go for that. Um, Every step along the way, there's always been kind of these challenges, these difficulties of really kind of moving forward with doing that. And they've always kind of been wondering, like, why, God? Why is this not happening? What's been taking place? Because some of you might have been here for quite some time. You're like, yeah, we hear that you talk about that all the time, but nothing's ever been done. Why? Um, Well, the reason why is because there's always been these struggles and challenges uh, mainly to do with kind of uh, uh, the the property management, the owners, and desires of the owners, and what the owners want to do long term, and so on and so forth. So in short, over the past um, year and a half, we've been sort of on a month-to-month basis uh, rent with these guys. And uh, negotiating, trying to figure out what to do long term. We knew that if we were gonna be here long term, we really need to build out classrooms. If you go beyond that door right back there, we've got over typically 150 kids on a Sunday morning crammed in the classrooms. It's chaotic back there. It's, if you're a parent, it's like it's organized chaos. Just um, <laughs> to um, so assure you. It's not chaos. Uh, it is, but it's not. Um, anyways, um, so, you know, we've just known in order to do things well, like, we, we need to expand those classrooms because it's, it's always been uh, challenging to kind of shoehorn a bunch of these uh, kids in there. So, anyways, what has basically come up recently is the landlords have expressed their interest or the owners have expressed a desire to um, not give us any terms long t- or long-term lease but also to raise our rent uh, considerably and when I say considerably, it's to the point where it's just, it's just not realistic for us to be here. It's one of those things where um, our elder team um, have basically spent a lot of time praying and thinking, God, what do you want to do? Um, we realize we've got finite amounts of resources, uh, i.e. money. And how do you want us to best steward the resources that we have? Because really, at the end of the day, we want to steward resources that we have. I mean, for us to be able to send money to, to uh, work that's out birthed out from this church, like in Ukraine, those are things that we're passionate about raising up people to be part of the ministry, to train other disciples. Those are things we're passionate about. Dumping large sums of money into a building is not what we're really passionate about. I mean, we realize it serves a functionality. Um, It's important. There's a place. There's a room. There's a spot for it. But we just want to be careful about that. It's kind of a conviction that's really on all of our hearts. So it's kind of led us to really ask God, God, what do you have next for us? What is in store for us? And if you've been around San Luis Obispo for any length of time, you know that it's expensive to live here. It's uh, same thing with regard to businesses. It's really hard Um, it's kind of one of those things where sadly when you know I I see a new business going downtown a handful of new businesses and always in the back of my mind I'm like okay six months they're gone you know it's like if they pass the six month mark I'm like yes it's awesome they're going still but I I also know that they're it's hard for them because they're paying uh, literally an arm and a leg or the firstborn child for rent and it's just crazy. So I mean the fact of the matter is is that um, a couple days ago when we were kind of uh, drafting this, which is this is kind of the information that's on here. This was also posted on the city and Facebook and whatnot last night. It's what I'm telling you guys about right now. Um, we uh, basically, at first, the, uh, the, the landlords, the owners wanted to charge us a lot. Um, around Thursday or Friday, I've been able to have some good negotiations and dialogue with the actual owners. And they've been really willing and really nice and kind to work with and been really helpful. And so they basically agreed to not raise our rent for the next six months to potentially a year, which is awesome. It actually buys us a little bit more time, um, which is a huge praise report for that. So, yeah, it's awesome. Um, Really what that does, it just gives us a little bit more time uh, to just be prayerful and consider what God has for us in terms of our next step. Um, That being said, it's just been one of those things that we've, even though in the midst of there's a lot of uncertainties as to what is the future for a gathering spot for Calvary Slow as a church family, what will that look like? There's a lot of uncertainties uh, regarding that. But one of the things that all of our elder team have kind of really all come to agreement on is it's really important. We're really certain. So in the midst of a lot of uncertainties, we're absolutely certain that what God is no doubt doing is he's drawing our family together, our church family, to really pray. We just really sense that this is what God is saying. I want you to unite the church family together to pray. And that kind of causes us to really ask questions. Well, how do we do that? How do we mobilize that? How do we uh, strategically make that happen? And so this is kind of what I'm telling you about that as the next few weeks, three to be uh, uh, exact, that we really feel like we want to mobilize our church family to do this. I, I realize on any given Sunday there's people that have been here at Calvary Slow for any length of time. In fact, I'll ask a couple questions there. How many of you actually would call Calvary Slow your home church right now? Just raise your hand. Like, when people ask you where do you go to church, you're like, oh, I go to Calvary Slow. Cool. How many of you um, have, maybe you don't go, this is not necessarily a home church, um, but maybe you've come here off and on periodically. How many have actually been, like, impacted positively by the gospel uh, of Jesus that's been preached here, the gospel culture uh, that's been part of Calvary Slow uh, environment, Calvary Slow Church? Just raise your hand. I've been positively impacted by the gospel here. Awesome. A couple of you that like, have been, been like, yeah, I, went good. I, I call this my church. You didn't raise your hand, so I'm not sure what that means. Um, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. Um, I'm like, oh, it's a bummer. Um, anyways, uh, the, the last thing, how many of you would actually say, you know what, I love this church, I'm committed to this church, and in, in whatever, uh, if, if especially a call to prayer, I want to pray, I want to be a part of the movement to pray for what God's direction and plan is. I'm just, you know, would you, would you commit to that? Raise your hand, just out of curiosity. Okay, that's cool. I appreciate, I appreciate that. I also appreciate the honesty if you guys uh, didn't raise your hand as well. That's cool. Um, um, but the point that I would make is this, is that what we really want to do, what we really feel led to do is to kind of create spots or places whereby over the next three weeks, we strategically, unitedly as a body, as a community, pray together. Um, what we'll pray for, I'll tell you about that in just a second, um, but in short, what we're basically doing, the plan, is to basically gather into groups. Now, we can all gather as individuals. My hope, my trust is that you guys would actually pray as individuals, so when you wake up in the morning, and if you read your Bible, and hopefully you do read your Bible, that you would take some time, and throughout the day, just do, set a reminder in your iPhone or something like that, just be like, pray for Calvary Slow, pray for these things. That'd be awesome. We just really believe that God wants to, to answer prayers. But more importantly, we really also feel like this is an opportunity to come together as a family, not just simply pray separately, but to come together as a family and to be a part of what God's doing here. We really believe that God's doing good things at Calvary Slow, the fruit of what's happening here has literally just gone worldwide, as you just heard uh, Danny and Lee share, and uh, there's you know, a couple dozen missionaries that we have all around the world and lots of different places other than just simply Ukraine doing the same type of stuff, awesome stuff. And most of those people got saved at Calvary Slow. Most of those people are sitting in the exact same seats that you guys are sitting in. They met Jesus. They're going around the world and preaching Jesus and making... Uh, things happen like that. It's awesome. God's doing great things. So we really believe that God's doing awesome things. Well, God wants to continue to do awesome things, um, but we also believe that one of the ways in which God does that is not just simply by a small group of people working behind closed doors to make it happen, but rather as a church family we come together and especially in moments of challenge we come together and we do this. So, for example, um, as you know, Pastor here, Pastor here for twenty over going in the twenty-first year, very seldomly have, have we really as a church asked much of you guys. This is really what we're, we're kind of changing it a little bit. We, we're basically saying we want to ask something of you, and what we're asking of you is, is would you please uh, commit to finding a spot, which I'll uh, to pray over the next three weeks specifically for these things. So, so the four different ways in which we're going to do this, one, our Sunday morning services. We're actually going to carve out some time at the end of the service to pray. Um, we'll explain that in a sec. Um, and then secondly, community groups. If you're already currently a part of a community group, if you're leading a community group, if you host a small group of people that come together for prayer and Bible study and whatnot, what we're asking you to do is just take some time uh, throughout the duration of your community group, um, five minutes, 10 minutes, half an hour, 45 minutes, however you feel led, and just commit to praying. Just please commit to praying for that. Thirdly is homes. All right, some of you obviously are not involved in a community group. It's very challenging for you right now in the season of your life to get involved in a community group. No guilt. Um, We realize, we understand, sometimes we have seasons of life that, completely disallow us to get involved or to engage. So um, all of us, I would imagine, we all live in homes, and we've got community of people that we connect with. So whether or not you've got roommates or if you've got a family, what we're asking you to do is at least maybe gather them together as roommates and, and pray for a little bit. If they're Christian, of course. If they're not Christian, it might be a little bit awkward, but um, uh, you can still do it if you wanted to. It might be cool. But um, if you are a family, if you've know, you got kids, um, maybe just gather them together at dinner time, or maybe for, before they go to bed, just be like, hey, you know, our pastors have asked us to pray. We want to pray. Would you pray for us or pray with us? And, you know, it's amazing. Like like hearing little five-year-old kids just, like, fold their hands or whatever. I mean, if, if you do that, it's no, like, biblical mandate. Like, you must fold your hands and pray. So, anyways, I digress. But the point of the matter is it's, it's awesome to hear them just pray and tell them what to pray for and encourage them so they, they know what they're praying for, so they're informed. Uh, with regard to that. And then let's just trust that God wants to do things. The final thing are what we would call prayer hubs. And basically what prayer hubs are is these are different groups that will be gathering throughout the week all around the entire county. And most of these are are community groups that are basically saying we will serve uh, functionally as a spot or as a hub for people should they like to gather uh, to come and to pray with us for, uh, you know, 45 minutes, half an hour of time. Um, we're also going to be having one of the prayer hubs here at the church, which uh, my wife and I will be leading um, on Wednesday mornings at around seven o'clock. So bright and early. So if you, you know, got to go to work, and you can just come and join us and pray for the next, you know, three weeks uh, for about forty-five minutes or so. Um, so what we're encouraging you to do is think about that. If you have wanted to find out where those prayer hubs are at, uh, I have this little flyer right here. There's some up front. There's some out either the door. Um, all the prayer hubs are right there. Um, if you just go to our website, all the information will be up on our website. Um, Like I said, or if you're on Facebook, just go to the Calvary Slow uh, Church page and like that. All the information should be there. Or if you are my Facebook friend, I just posted this information as well. You can find all that information there as well. Um, So final question is, what are we uh, asking you guys to pray for? Really three specific things. One, we're asking you as a church family to pray specifically for our bigger, broader church family. uh, And specifically pray for our flexibility as a community, that we would really truly be open to whatever it is that God is leading us to do. And I realize it's going to always be challenging because the older we get, especially for me, I mean, I'm going on 45 years, and I realize that the older I get, the more prone I am to just want things to be comfortable. I want things to just not be moving too much or not be changing too much. I just want my little chair where I can sit down and my little remote control is right there and I have to go searching in the cushions. I want things to be easy for me. And so sometimes when things come in, begin to uh, upset the orderliness of my life, it's challenging. It's very inconveniencing. But the reality is, is we also realize that the gospel in itself is a very inconvenient call. There's nothing convenient about loving God and loving our enemies. In fact, it's very inconveniencing. How do we know that? Because the chief example of that is Jesus very inconveniencing for him, obviously, imagine coming into this world and being judged and attacked and ridiculed and mocked and ultimately killed, Uh, and yet that's what love does. Love is willing to follow uh, a greater purpose, and what we're really asking you to pray for that our church would have this sense of flexibility and a commitment to God's leading, God's guidance for whatever that's going to look like for us, especially the fact that uh, we may be likely looking at the fact that moving and if that may even involve modifying our gathering times, when we meet, when we come to a meal, when we have a dinner together as a church family, what that looks like. So we're just asking that our church family would really adopt uh, a mentality of flexibility to whatever that looks like. Second thing is that uh, really God would lead us to the right location uh, for uh, compatibility with the mission that we feel uh, called to. Uh, and then finally, that we would just have clarity for the elder team To discern and decide, and to prayerfully steward the resources that we have. Um, Again, I'm just uh, speaking on behalf of the elder team that we have here. Our our leaders love Jesus. They love you guys. They serve you guys. Uh, Dave just mentioned and did announcements. He's he's one of our elders. They love you guys. We truly want to steward the resources that we have well. It's one of the reasons why we don't want to just go crazy in debt in terms of spending money at a building that we don't have any like real long term. Uh, You know, residual, and we just want to steward what God gives us well. So pray that the leaders of Calvary Slow that are part of that would just steward well what we have. And also at the same time, the uh, the flip side of that is that pray that God would just give us the resources that we need so that we would know what God has for us. So all of those things, those three things, the prayer uh, spots where we're asking you guys to consider. I'm just simply asking you would, would you please partner, would you be part of this over the next three weeks? Just commit to that, um, it would be, it'd be so helpful, it, it would mean a lot to our eldership team. We truly believe that God wants to do good things, um, we, we trust that. We see that even in the early church, you know, a lot of times Christians were like, I want to be like the early church, and a lot of times the fact of the matter is, is that there are things that the early church did that, in a lot of ways, that if we were to sort of implement those in our lives right now, we'd be a little bit like, Oh, I don't have time for that, like that's what I, you know through Facebook newsfeed, or that's when I watch Netflix chronically or whatever. I mean, the point of the matter is is that we don't like to have our lives upset too much. But what we're asking you to maybe just consider, what would it look like if we were to, to, to in some ways, respond the way the early church did? There's a couple passages in the book of Acts where it says that when they found themselves in great uh, turmoil and situations where they were confronted with, what do we do? Rather than running away or moving away from each other, they actually ran in towards each other. They pressed into each other, pressed into God. And that's what we're asking you guys to do. I mean, to some degree, I don't, I've been really intentionally trying hard to not in any way paint the impression that this is, like, urgent, but it's very urgent. Like, we really feel the weight of this. Um, if you can think of it this way, having a large family um, and really asking God, God, where and how... Can we mobilize and move a large church family in, in a very, very expensive area that we feel deeply committed to? So that's that's what we're asking. Um, please pray as to what that would look like for you guys, and ask God where you could uh, get involved and where you can join one of these prayer hubs, um, or at least mobilize the groups of people that God has put in your life. So that sound good? You guys okay with that? Can you Can you guys like maybe like raise your hand and say, yes, we're into it, if you're, if you're stoked on that, cool, thanks, I just need a little bit of, a thank you, thank you, um, you can tell I'm like really insecure right now, I'm just kidding, um, I don't get insecure, sometimes I do, but um, anyways, we're going to jump into the Bible right now, so why don't you guys open the book of Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6 is where we're at. I'm going to read out of Ephesians, um, uh, the passage that we'll be taking a look at here. It starts at Ephesians chapter 6. We'll take a look at verses 13 to 15. Um, If you've been with us for any length of time, we've been looking at the subject of what's typically known as the armor of God. And in a lot of ways, there's a, there's a lot of irony, I think, to be looking at the passage that we'll be looking at here today in light of everything that I just shared with you guys. And, and I think it'll become clear just a moment here as we jump in and begin to take a look at this. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 to 15, I I'm going to read it, and then uh, I'll pray, and then we'll begin to jump in and ask God for his help. It says this, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand, stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given in or given by the gospel of peace. So God, we ask you right now that you help give our minds understanding, help us to unpack and understand what God, your word has for us, what you desire for us. And God, really help us to apply it, help us to live according to it. So we're not just simply asking you, God, what do you want to reveal? But we're also asking us, what do you want us to do? How will you empower us and enable us to do this? So we commit and give our hearts and our minds and our thoughts to you. And we ask, God, that you would reshape us in a way, God, that's according to your, your beauty. We believe you want to bring transformation. We believe you want to bring change. We believe that you want to upset the status quo that oftentimes leads to nothing but brokenness, corruption. God, you want to use your church to be that. So God, I pray that you would help us to be your church, your people, to see and understand your role for us in this larger culture. So we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So next slide. I'll show just kind of the two things that we've been looking at over the past several weeks is something that Paul informs us about. What we've been saying is that Paul uh, has been describing to us that God in the gospel throughout the entire book of Ephesians has been showing to us that what God's up to in this world is he's bringing orderliness out of that which was nothing more than chaos. He's bringing uh, peace to where there is nothing but um, uh, brokenness. And he's bringing life to where there was death. He's bringing light to where there was darkness this is what God's doing. So if you're a Christian, that basically describes what God did to your life. He took your life that was you know, defined by defilement and sin and he gave you freedom. He gave you life. He washed you. He cleansed you. If you were somebody that was in a state or in a place of deathness, and death defined your life, God brought you out of death and gave you and brought you into life. And so your life is now defined by Life, his life. This is what the gospel does. And yet, at the same time, if you are a follower of Jesus, you know that there's pushback. There's always pushback. So there are what Paul would describe is, actually, he wouldn't necessarily use these words as my phrase, corrupting influences that are constantly pushing back on what God has begun to do within your life. And this comes in the form of the world, the flesh, and the devil. But in particular, the devil is what Paul has been talking about over the past several weeks, or at least that's what we've been looking at. So what Paul then does is he exhorts us to be strong in the Lord, and he says, by taking a posture of stance, or standing, this indicates that he wants us to be alert as opposed to be asleep, taking a nap. He wants us to stand as opposed to lying down. One is a state of readiness, one is a state of total vulnerability, all right? When you're laying down in that position, you're totally vulnerable. When you're standing and you're ready, you're on guard, you're in a position of readiness. So... Paul then goes on to say that we are to do this by applying what he describes as the armor of God. So God gives, God equips us, the believers, with something so that we can withstand the evil in the day when it arises. So rather than giving into the corrupting influences, rather than allowing those to crush us or redefine us or defile us or break us or ruin us or leave us cowering in fear... We actually, by God's grace, by God's strength, are able to stand and have victory over these things. Now, one of the things that we've been saying over the past several weeks is that there will be occasions where you will fall flat on your face, flat on your back. Maybe some of you are like, that's where you're at right now. You're like, that's me. Like, I'm glad you're here because this is the place you should be. Because the hope is, is that by being here, by being around God's people, you will find support and strength and gospel that will rebuild, revitalize your confidence and faith in the great God that we have. That's the hope. So that if you walked in here in great weakness and shame and defilement, you can walk out of here at least knowing that God's in control. No matter how dire, no matter how dark, no matter how strange or troublesome circumstances may be in your life, that you'll walk out of here with some degree of hope that God's in control even though you may not know exactly where everything's headed. So the point that I would make is that Paul then exhorts us to not only be strong in the Lord, but to also take this posture of stance because God has given us this armor of God. So on the one hand, be alert. On the other hand, be armed. What we looked at today when we read in chapter 6, verse 15, is Paul then says again, "...and put on as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace." I'm going to read that to you out of the Amplified Version. Um, I think it does a really good job of kind of expressing, if you're wondering, like, what's the Amplified Version? It is sort of just that. It amplifies everything. So if you compare this to maybe the verse that you have, your verse might only have, like, eight words. This has, like, 16 or however many, because it amplifies everything. But listen to what it says. Having shod your feet in preparation to face the enemy with the firm-footed stability and prompt, or the promptness and readiness produced by the good news... That's the little phrase that I want to focus on of the gospel peace. So the question that arises out of that that I want to begin to understand and unpack a little bit is: What are the shoes of readiness of the gospel peace? Like, what are they? Like, why does Paul say to a group of Christians living in a city called Ephesus, you know, two thousand years ago or nineteen hundred years ago, or how long it was, uh, that then gets you know translated, retranslated over and over and over again to the point where here we are sitting in you know, California and the most amazing city in the world, right, Uh, where it's like middle of winter, dead of winter, and it feels like summer outside, like how, what does it mean to have our feet shod? First of all, we we don't, I don't think anybody's ever used the word shod before, but I think it means clothed or put on, like what does it mean to actually put on for your feet uh, this sense of readiness of the gospel peace? What does that mean? That's what I want to try to understand. Does that make sense? Because some of us, you know, we're used to, like, Christian cliche. We're like, oh, yes, I put on the gospel of peace on my feet. And we're like, most people are looking at you cross-eyed, like, what in the world are you talking about? Shod, gospel of peace, shoes, what does that even mean? So let's try to understand this. Let's try to understand this. All right. So first of all, um, the word that Paul actually uses here is actually not, the emphasis is not so much upon the shoes. And it's really not even so much upon the gospel, it's upon the readiness, it's a word that, I'll look at in a second, it's, a, it's, a, it's upon the readiness that is derived from the gospel of peace. So the word that Paul uses here for readiness, um, basically it has both an active sense and a passive sense. Hetomatsia uh, is the actual Greek word, and the active sense basically means to make ready. So if you think of it this way, if you're going to hetomatsia, so Make yourself ready in an active sense for a race. What would you do? You'd be out there. You'd be like stretching. You're making sure that you know you got water and Gatorade or coconut juice or something like that 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 you can get yourself ready for this race. Right? That is sort of an active way of making uh, preparations for this race. Now, what's a passive sense? A passive sense is basically the idea of resolve to be ready. In other words, this is what takes place back in the locker room where you're like psyching yourself up. You're listening to Foo Fighters. You're doing something to just get yourself amped because you're going to go run something really long. So you need not only an active sense of being ready, stretched and weapons and sharp and everything else, but you also need a passive sense of being ready. This is exactly what the word means. Uh, it means to be ready, but the readiness that comes from the gospel of Peace. So if you think of it this way, somebody could have, you know, sword in hand, like a soldier has sword in hand, it's sharpened, they have a battle plan, they, they know exactly what their commanding officer wants from them, uh, they're stretched, I don't know what soldiers actually do and how they get ready, um, but let's but it, say so you're a soldier and you've got everything in an active sense ready to go, but in a passive sense, you are absolutely terrified by fear. You're like shivering. You are literally shivering. Like your feet, your legs are shaking. Your boots are literally just falling off your feet because you are afraid. Even though you may be ready actively, you are not ready passively. And so therefore, when the call to rush goes, you will cower back. Let's say the opposite is true. You are psyched and ready to go. You want to fight. You're excited to keep getting, uh, taking ground. But you don't have a weapon. You might have a rake. All right, um... Uh, you, you don't have any commanding orders. You're just kind of going by the flight of the seat of your pants. Um, and there's, there's really no organization. You're not passively ready. Now, you might rush out in the battle, but you will perhaps lose because even though you may have resolve, you don't have the proper passive or uh, active uh, readiness. And so this word that Paul uses here is a really important word. It's the word that basically ties the only this only time ever in the New Testament that this particular word appears. But here's what Paul says, that this readiness that he's saying... To the believers. So if you're a Christian, Paul's saying this to you. I want you to hear Paul the Apostle, this great leader slash servant in the church, loves Jesus, heard from God, writes letters to groups of people that get passed down to us. So here we are reading. Paul is saying to you, put on your feet the readiness of the gospel piece. The readiness that comes from this gospel piece. So... What does that look like, and why does Paul do this? Well, again, Paul is probably, no doubt, looking at Roman soldiers' uh, outfit. So if you think of it this way, shoes, uh, any shoe fans out there? Anybody like shoes, like into shoes? It's funny, because I, I asked for a service. There's like 10 guys that raised their hand, and like, I'm into shoes. Like, that's, I, I love the fact it's like dudes that are raising their hand, like, I'm into shoes. And I love the fact that they're bold enough to be like, I'm in the shoes. Like, no women, like, seriously, again, like, how many of you are, like, into shoes? You like shoes, like, you're into shoes. There is, there is there's ample space in your closet devoted to shoes, all right? All right? So, anyways, well, we're going to be talking a little bit about shoes. And so, if you think about, it, there, with shoes, most shoes either fall into one or two categories. They're either uh, highly fashionable, all Right? they look good on you, they make you look good, or they are highly functional. And oftentimes, it's hard to find kind of a crossbreed between the two, between highly functionality and highly fashionable, right? It's hard to find that, all right? Um, I mean, uh, you know, running cleats are awesome, but you you wouldn't wear those out to, like, the prom. They're just not very functional. So the, the idea here is that Paul's thinking about shoes that were basically given to soldiers that would then rush out to battle and fight. In other words, their objective was to not only take ground, but to also hold ground. So Paul's saying... Equip yourself. Equip yourself with the shoes of the readiness that come from the gospel of peace. So, this is what a shoe looks like. All right. By the way, this is kind of like from an archaeological dig. So, uh, and I know that because it came from the internet. It's like everything that comes from the internet is always. To be believed. And so, uh, no, but I think that is. Um, But if you look at it, it's it's obviously leather. Um, There's uh, little spots where you would strap up, you know, uh, a a lace on there. And on the very bottom of the shoe is kind of interesting because it's like a cleat. It's like a, like, think of it this way it's like a first century version of a pair of cleats. So there's at least three different reasons why uh, Roman soldiers' shoes were crafted in a specific way in which they were. So, three things one is they provide durability, which means strength and protection, they're to be tough. Now, they're not super tough. I mean, obviously, you've got, like, struck on the foot with a really, really sharp sword, uh, probably get a little bit of damage, Uh, but they are tough because if somebody threw a rock at you and you got this hard leather covering your foot, um, it probably wouldn't uh, at least bleed. And so there's a sense of durability. They also provide provide stability. And so this is the idea of firm-footedness. This is kind of what the word actually means that Paul describes here, uh, hetomatsia, uh, stability, that it's also to kind of provide a position or a posture that when you are going into battle, you're not going to be easily knocked over. You're not easily overcome by simple types of circumstances. So here you are running out of the field, a uh, battle, and all of a sudden a rabbit runs in front of you and trips. You're like, oh, my gosh, I'm freaking out right now. A rabbit just crossed my path. Like, like something little small minor like that should not upset you, upset a soldier. If, obviously, you realize I got these strong, durable shoes They provide stability for me. I'm not going to fall down. And finally, they provide mobility. And this is uh, kind of dated back during the time of Alexander the Great. uh, Created this uh, massive army, which one of their number one abilities that uh, they had going for them was that they were really highly mobile. So every uh, massive army from that point forward decided we need to really build and develop some form of Uh, armor for our soldiers that provide maximum mobility. So the idea here is flexibility or movability so that we can easily move from spot to spot. So I think when Paul talks about this word, I think he has all three of these concepts in mind for you and I. So the point of the matter is all of these come from, as Paul says, the gospel. So the idea of durability, stability, and mobility actually come to us from the gospel. So that may not completely uh, resonate with you. So I want you to think about it this way. Take all those traits and turn them inside out. So in other words, think of it this way. The idea of durability. The opposite of durability would be weakness. Somebody that is completely not capable of withstanding even minor uh, attacks. Um, In other words, there's a sense of weakness. Uh, The opposite of stability would be instability. Instability. Rather than being firm-footed, it's a sense you're always slipping. Everything that comes in your life is, is like not a, it's like a major thing. Everything that happens in your life. You know anybody like that? Any minor thing comes in their life, they're like, oh, my gosh, I'm freaking out. Like, it's, you know, the coffee that I was supposed to pay for, it cost me an extra 10 cents. I don't have 10 cents. I feel like I'm going to go broke. It's like, calm down. It's like 10 cents. It's no big deal. Or like, like, every little thing freaks them out. The opposite of that would really be stability. They're just totally unstable. So why? You know, the question naturally can be asked, why is there such extreme instability in this person's life? Another thing to think about is the opposite of mobility would be completely inflexible or immobile. Or to think of it this way, kind of a stubbornness is what the Old Testament would describe. This sense of like a a donkey kind of putting its feet in the ground and resisting, resisting God, resisting the movement or the mobility of God. So the question then has to be asked, if Paul is saying, put on for your feet uh, these shoes that that are are from the readiness of the gospel peace. I think what Paul is saying is that one of the ways in which you will stave off spiritual brokenness and destruction and corruption is by preparing yourself, getting yourself by putting on these shoes that bring about the readiness that come from the gospel. They bring about durability. They bring about stability. They bring about a uh, mobility about your life. So if you can understand that as these ideas or traits are part of your life, you will find yourself moving forward ahead in poise, moving ahead in equilibrium, as opposed to constantly falling down, as opposed to being tripped up over every little difficult thing that comes in your life, no matter how big, no matter how small it is. And you will also be able to find yourself being really flexible, that when things don't go your way, you'll be able to just kind of roll with the punches. So you think about it this way, based upon the idea that I think Paul is saying with regard to the readiness, that if the opposite of all these were true in your life, think about what type of Christian experience you'd be living. I mean, just think about that for a second. Would that be a path to life or a path of constant, ongoing, repeated brokenness? The latter. Good job. So the point of the matter is, is that God truly wants, desires, has given everything you need... To prepare, to, get, to put on, to apply these shoes for the readiness that come from the gospel peace. So, I wanna just kinda of ask the question as we move into this how does the gospel peace really make us ready? How does it do this? I think two things, first of all, as we jump in, As I think what Paul's been sort of unpacking throughout the entire book of Ephesians so far is two things. One, Paul declares the good news is that what God has done for people. That were broken, that were rebellious, and again, our brokenness in our life, uh, oftentimes is either because it's a direct result of defiance, rebellion, or sin in our heart against God, or it's oftentimes the result of others' defiance and rebellion of sin against God, and then somehow that bleeds over upon us. In other words, we get the funk from their sin upon our lives. We get that emotional pain, that emotional baggage that comes from being sinned against. Have you ever been sinned against? Has anyone ever done something of great, profound drama and trauma and pain to your life? You know the consequences of sin because you feel the weight of that. But sometimes we retaliate and we continue to promote sin and sin begins to continue to metastasize and create more pockets of sin in our life. So we've got this sin problem. But what God does, he comes into this world to do something about the sin problem. So what Paul describes is that God has done something through Jesus at great expense to himself, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, ultimately through his ascension, to declare that Jesus has come to undo the effects of sin and death in this world, in our hearts, in our lives, that have once occupied space and territory in our hearts, And it brought destruction. And so the way that Paul unpacks that and says that, you know what God has done is he's created peace with God. So the first thing of understanding about the gospel is that the gospel comes to us and says, there's no longer any enmity between you and God. There's peace with God. The second thing of thinking about this is that peace from God. Most of us, when we talk about peace, we're like, I need peace from God. But in reality, we need to first of all ask, do we have peace with God? Like, are you still fighting and resisting God? C.S. Lewis famously stated, love this quote, he says, fallen man is simply not an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. The core of our being, there's a war in our hearts against God. We don't like the idea We strongly have adverse feelings towards this idea of a God out there imposing any type of will or authority over us. So we resent that, we fight that, we push that off to the side. But when Jesus says, come to me, trust me, he's not saying it in the case or in the form of a conquering, wicked tyrant. He's saying that in the shape of a crucified savior as a friend, saying, trust me. Not as an angry landlord is looking to evict you, saying, trust me. I won't evict you. (laughs) Ha, ha, not now. But the point of the matter is, that's not how Jesus does it. He says, trust me. I've done everything for you. I was crucified for you. Trust me. So what Paul's saying is that this good news, this gospel, has come to us to undo the rebellion or the effects of rebellion to bring about salvation. This is kind of what Paul was actually referring to, I think, as, as well as perhaps echoing from the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. Um, I think Paul had this in his mind probably when he was talking about the idea of the gospel of peace, um, this great passage that looked forward to the one day that when God would make things right. Isaiah 52, verse 7 says this, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim the peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, Your God reigns. So I think what Paul is basically saying is that this good news has the power to actually not just change our behavior, but to change our hearts. See, religion really focuses on your behavior. The tendency of religious attitude in our hearts typically just looks at and is only content with making sure we look righteous. Righteous. So, religion, for the most part, can just simply focus upon external actions of what we do. That's one of the reasons why, if you've been a part of church like this type of scenario that I'll explain, is that there's a lot of preoccupation upon how you live or how you look and what you do, and really especially what you don't do. So, what happens is basically it boils down to a list of here's like 10, 15 things that you have to avoid in order to walk with Jesus. And everything becomes revolves around those things. Now, are there things that A Christian gives up. Of course there is. There's a lot of things. And the point of the matter is is following Jesus is costly. But the price to not follow Jesus is actually even more costly. So here's a point that I would make. Is that this gospel that Paul announces comes to announce peace with God. And then through or from peace with God comes the peace of God that begins to transform and change our hearts. Let me read you how Paul would actually put this in Ephesians chapter 2. So if you guys want to turn back there real quick, Ephesians chapter 2, I'll just read verses 13 and 17. We'll wrap this up real quickly. Paul says this, in Christ Jesus, you were once far off. The idea that's conveyed here is the word alienated. You were once alienated. You removed yourself. Think about somebody. If you go to a party and you find someone that is alienated, what does that mean? It means that that person, for example, may be sitting in that room and is very uncomfortable, this would, by the way, be me. Like I, when, when I'm in large crowds of people that I don't really know, I, I hate being there by myself. My wife, sometimes she's very social. If she leaves me, I start freaking out. I'm like texting her, where are you at? Where did you go? I need you. I'm feeling really vulnerable right now. And the point of the matter is, is that an alienated person is one who's just like, I feel really alienated. I'm going to go just sit in a corner and like act like I need to check my emails. Right? Um, and the fact of the matter is like alienated. In, before God, we were alienated from God. Because of our sin. Again, we we basically rebel. We are these rebels that C.S. Lewis describes. We don't want God's authority. We don't want God's wisdom. We don't want God's counsel coming into our lives. So we push it away. And by that pushing away, we, we alienate ourselves. We push ourselves away from the source of life. That's why we sense death. That's why we sense defilement, brokenness, Corruption. We push, we push away. I've, I've described it like this before. It's like we want to emancipate ourselves from God. We want out of this God slash image of God relationship. But you can't. You can't. You cannot remove the stamp of God upon your life any more than Woody can remove the name on the bottom of his foot of the wo- name Andy. I love that image, right? Toy Story, some of you are like, what are you talking about? Toy Story, right in the bottom of Woody's foot, like named Andy. It's like, he belongs to Andy, all right? It will never, ever change. We bear God's image. No matter how much we resent his involvement in our lives, we will always bear his image. And that's why there will always be tension and enmity until that war is resolved, as C.S. Lewis said, by raising the white flag and saying, God, I Surrender. So, he goes on to say um, that we who have been far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ, for he himself is our peace. So, here's the word peace. He has made us both one and has broken down the flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. So, again, he uses the phrase hostility. think about this. Now, again, some of us may be shocked by the fact that, like, what do you mean? Paul is saying that in the natural state of our hearts, we are hostile towards God. It's exactly what Paul's saying. That's exactly what Paul's saying. Our main problem in life is that we are hostile towards the God who is zealously in love with you. Zealously intends the best for you, and yet we push, we resist, we alienate. But Paul goes on to say that he is pressed through that hostility, that he might create himself a new man in the place of two. So making peace and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. How did the hostility get killed? How did it get crushed? By the love of God that was put on display on the cross. When we see and really bring in and and understand and trust in what Jesus did for us on the cross, that he was crushed, the man of peace subjected himself to nothing but hostility, So that you and I, who want peace, who know nothing but hostility, can be given peace. Do you guys understand that? Like, to the degree that we get that, that good news changes our hearts. If you think of it this way, it thaws out the iciness of our souls. That's what the gospel does. This is why we need the gospel regularly, repeated to ourselves, of the love of God It's not cheap love, by the way. It's not love, like just sentimental love that we often think about love. Like, God loves me. Yes, he loves you, but understand to the degree how God loves you, God loves you so much so that he put on display that love. And the display of that love was cruciform love, love that was on the cross bearing shame so that we who know nothing but shame but live our entire lives trying to cover up our shame can actually be given a new name and be given freedom be given life paul then finishes his little statement verse 17 he says and he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near that to the degree that we understand that this gospel of peace actually transforms our hearts this is how the readiness of this begins to reshape us so again how does this gospel peace remake us or make us ready to the degree that you understand this gospel is good news this announcement that God has not abandoned you in your sin, in your defilement, in your brokenness, to the degree that you understand that and get that, to the degree that you come alive like a garden beginning to bear fruit and fruitfulness. Uh, This time of year, things are coming alive. I went for a hike yesterday morning, and I was uh, going up this hill behind my house, and all of a sudden, I was struck. It was like, it smacked me really hard, this intense, sweet smell, and I'm like, there's nobody around here. I don't know where this intense sweet smell is coming around. And right around the corner, I walked around, and there's this massive bush that was coming to life. It was budding. I don't even know what it was. It was this white flower that was so sweet. It was almost pungent sweet because it was too sweet to even like, breathe in. When, when the gospel begins to from your life and you get it, you come to life like this flower. You come to life. And when that happens, here's what begins to take place in your life. There is a sense of Durability that begins to define you. There is a sense of stability whereby your life begins to find some sense of stableness because of the gospel. And there is a sense of mobility whereby you would be willing to say, anywhere Jesus goes, I'll follow him. I just want to be where he's at. Even if where that's at is in the context of suffering and hurt and pain, if he is there, I don't want to miss him. God bless you point is, to the degree that you understand this gospel, this is what begins to provide durability and stability and mobility within your life. To the degree that you are bored, use that word, bored of what God's done, or indifferent to what God has done, or don't care to think about because the gospel, the cross, has become nothing more than another uh, news soundbite in your mind Along with you know, ISIS kills or beheads another guy, or you know, children were abducted by Boko Haram, or you know, President Obama did something crazy. As Fox headlines constantly saying something, the point of the matter is to the degree that you allow the gospel to sink to nothing more than just another headline, then it won't affect you, it won't impact you. So rather than being durable, you'll find yourself constantly fragile, broken. Rather than being stable you'll find yourself always easily overcome by minor things and you will be completely inflexible. You will look for security and safety because that becomes your new little God. In anything that ruffles or challenges or threatens or shakes, our security frightens us. But the gospel frees us. So, last thing I want to finish, I'm done. What are some of the hindrances to our readiness? What are some things that come in the way and basically disrupt and ruin and break apart durability, stability, mobility? Okay, four of them real quick. One, certitude. What I mean by certitude is a sense where there are within Christian church, call them brothers and sisters in Christ. We love them. I love them. But there's a tendency oftentimes that can define some brothers and sisters in Christ with nothing more than intense certitude, meaning they have this massively long list of biblical doctrines and concepts that they are absolutely certain on, that if there's anything that comes against or questions or ruffles any uh, ideas about that, then they become highly frustrated, highly agitated, angry, and deeply inflexible. One of the things I've learned by way of example, that I will give myself as an example, is that when I first became a Christian, my list of things that I was absolutely certain of was very, very large. I mean, I was certain I knew when the rapture was going to happen. I was certain I knew all of these things about God. The longer I've gone in my Christian walk, the more I've began to realize there are all sorts of things that Christians have long debated. That there are all sorts of people that love Jesus all around the world that have very different perspectives on these things. So it's not led to a sense of completely definitive uncertainty about biblical doctrines. What it does is it's kind of shrunk in my list. That there are things I believe as Christians we should be absolutely filled with certitude over. And what I mean by that, we should be willing to not only live for those things, but also be willing to die for those things. Some of those things would be like, there's God. That God has shown himself through Jesus. That Jesus came and died for my sin. He rose again for my justification. He ascended into heaven. He is king over all things. He is coming again. Those are things, for example, I would say on that list of things you should fight for, with great high-level amount of certitude are those things. But when our list becomes massive, and they become things that Christians have long, lovingly debated, and we're willing to fight and divide and angrily cause all sorts of ill-repute happen within the church, then I would say that sense of certitude creates a high level of inflexibility. Or in other words, your feet are not shod with the readiness of the gospel that comes the gospel of peace. Second thing is experientialism. Some of you are like, that is not a word. And that's exactly what autocorrect said too. But it's wrong because I looked it up. It's actually a word. And it basically means this. When, when, when somebody lives their life defined by their experience, their experience defines what's right or wrong, what's truth. So in other words, if you come to church or if you're in a season in your life where you're really feeling God, then you would be, you'd say things like, I feel really close to God. In moments where you feel nothing, in fact, you may even cry out to God and you will get any answers. You may feel like, I don't, I don't know where God's at. I don't sense his presence. I don't sense any answers. He feels really far away from me. You in those moments have no sense of durability in your life. You are crumbling apart, falling apart at the seams because of experientialism. That defines a lot of Christians' lives. In other words, the worship service has to just be right. The lights have to be just right. Your experience with God has to be just right. And what you feel in your heart has to be just right. And if it doesn't happen, you're freaking out. Because you're like, I I think God's angry at me. I, I think God left me. And that defines your life. That brings about a great amount of insecurity and instability. Consumerism. This is kind of the idea that basically turns modern American Christians into nothing more than church connoisseurs. Where we go and we feast and we eat and we hop from church to church, from place to place not getting planted because really what we are it's, it's about us. It's about me centered on my experience and what I consume, what I eat as opposed to the way New Testament Christianity really is, is being a part of the family and giving ourselves to it. It's one of the reasons why I encourage you guys to jump in and pray with this. Uh, consumerism actually turns us all into these connoisseurs that this allows us to really enter into the life and the family and the messiness of the church. Because the moment it gets a little unmessy, or the moment it gets messy, we're out. We'll go someplace else. Finally, disbelief. Disbelief basically threatens our stability, our durability, our mobility in the gospel. Because when we disbelieve God, when we begin to become suspicious of God, that is actually somehow rooted in a sense of hostility towards God. That stops us in our tracks from really being swept up into what God desires. To bring about life in our lives and through our lives to others. So, this is it. I want to respond by not only worshiping, singing to God, which we'll do. I'm not going to sing in front of you guys, but um, what we're going to do is I mentioned earlier at the beginning of the service, that we're going to take a moment to pray. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have a break up in small groups to pray, and I'll just listen real quick. If you're here this morning and maybe you're not a Christian, or it kind of freaks you out, like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And you're like in a panic mode right now because some of you are like turning white. It's cool, my out. You you don't have to pray. It's totally fine. You don't have to say anything. Um, Just kind of get in little groups of maybe like four and five, and maybe someone within that group, um, if you can just pray. And what I'm going to ask you to pray for is again, that's the irony in a lot of ways of looking at this passage that we looked at uh, in conjunction with the fact of what we're going through right now as a church. Is to me, you know, in the least uh, ironic. You know, it's, a, it's, it's funny, like, God, wow, what are you, what are you doing here? Um, but the point of the matter is, I believe that God wants to mobilize our church family so that we are ready for whatever it is that God has. And, and I, and I want to pray that we as a church would be that. So, how about this? We all stand right now. We got a few more minutes before moms and dads, you got to go pick up your kids. Um, you're more than welcome to bring them in here during uh, song and whatnot, but then we'll wrap this up with just singing. But um, so, why don't you guys break up into groups of four, five, or so, something like that, and just immediately start to pray. We'll have a little slide up on the screen uh, to remind you guys of what to pray for. Uh, there's three things that we talked about for the church. I think they're putting a slide up right now. So why don't you go ahead and break up into your little groups, take a few moments, and pray with each other. You guys can just pray out loud and realize it might kind of raise sound all throughout the room in here, but that's okay. It's fine. So maybe huddle in your groups, and uh, then we'll finish with a song. Sound good? So go ahead, turn, and uh, begin to pray. And then uh, I think we're getting the slide up there. I think they're working on it right now.